0: Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open over with me, Luke in chapter 2, which rhymes. Luke chapter 2, uh, or your scripture journal. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be page 18, okay? Page 18. If you don't have a scripture journal, you want one, uh, feel free to grab one off of the table right there, right there at the welcome desk. Um, that'll be our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14, this morning, and we're going to kind of do some overlaps. So this week we're going to be in 2, 1 through 14. Next week we're going to be in 2, 8 through 21, okay? So we're going to, what we don't cover today from 8 through 14. We'll cover next week, okay? So 2, 1 through 14. Uh, It'll also be behind me on the screen as well in my translation for you to follow along there. Uh, If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. I wish Christmas season was more scandalous. Is that a weird thing to say, do you think? Christmas season, would you agree, in our country it's pretty tame? Yes? It's tame. There's nothing really confrontational about the season, is there? Not really. Uh, Every year seems mostly the same for most people, don't you think? We're off to a very bad start with your responses, by the way. It's tame. You know it's true, right? I mean, every year, don't you feel like every year is mostly the same? A business advertise their sales so you could spend all the money, again, like you did last year. You make arrangements so you can see your family and friends, and you eat the food you ate last year and the year before. You try to fit everything in and get everything done, and you're overwhelmed, kind of like you were last year. People decorate their houses with things you're supposed to decorate your houses with. Throw some lights on the outside, perhaps, or go to the lazy route and just put that single light in your yard that shines, you know, <laughs> bathes your house in different kind of colors, and you're done, right? Or maybe put up a nativity set in your yard or on the mantle. And what about these nativity sets? For one, Mary looks remarkably unexhausted for someone who just gave birth, right? Ladies, come on, right? Joseph seems pretty unaffected. The animals look unbothered at being kept from their feeding trough. The three wise men are there, even though we don't know how many there actually were, and they also didn't arrive until Jesus was about two years old. But besides the potential for inaccuracy, when you see the nativity scene, what is it that you feel and think about? Do we feel anything when we see the nativity scenes? They mostly look sweet and Harmless, the same old, same old, like other things about the season. And maybe that's a problem. Maybe we're missing the offense and the scandal. Maybe those offended grumps you know those offended grumps who petition to get nativity scenes removed from public places are onto something. Maybe we should be scandalized when we see the nativity scene too. Alistair Begg wrote this on this topic. He said, Nativity displays often sentimentalize the scene such that we think, ah, that's sweet. I like Christmas. But there's nothing in it that arrests you, nothing that sets you back on your heels, nothing that says, this moment changed everything. This night, heaven broke into earth. This was a night of glory and terror and pain and majesty and awe, all centered on the Son of God In human form, taking his first breath, crying his first cry, invading earth to save people. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all, and feel neither awe nor offense, but simply nothing much at all. And I don't think we just miss the offense. I I think we also miss a very significant feature in the scene itself, which is the object Jesus is laid in after he is born. Doing so, I think, if we zoom in on that, would actually heighten the scandal of Christmas and what is being communicated to us. So important is what we call a manger, which is literally a stone-feeding trough. That Luke mentions it, did you notice, three times from verses 7 through 16. We see the feeding trough in the nativity scenes, but do we truly see? Do we see what it's trying to tell us? what it's trying to point us to. On well, our time together, I want us to consider the feeding trough, and I want us to ask, what is this trying to tell us? There are at least three things that, point, that it points us to, which help us to see the scandal, offense, and the sheer enormity of the story that should be arresting to us every time we encounter it. So the first thing is this, number one. The feeding trough alerts us to the fact that this baby is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. The feeding trough alerts us to the fact that this baby is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. We may miss this in our yearly reading of the story, but Luke is intentionally juxtaposing the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Christ that is coming with his incarnation. You see how he opens chapter 2 by telling us what brings Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem is this decree from Caesar Augustus, because he wants a census of the whole world. Now, when Luke says, the whole world, he's saying the Roman Empire, okay? But the, for Caesar and Romans, Rome is the whole world. Now, remember, friends, the Holy Spirit inspired this word, and typically things are not put in Scripture for no reason. You'll agree with me on this, yes? Luke is telling us something here, not only what we looked at in our first message from Luke, that he is placing these events in real history because they really happened, but he's telling us something important about this baby and what he's bringing to earth and to people. The irony here is thick in two one. <coughs> Augustus fancies himself as a powerful man, and indeed he is, right? Most powerful man in the world up to this point. And he fancies himself as one who has incredible power, for indeed he does. But what he doesn't know is he's merely a pawn, an unconscious agent in the hands of a sovereign God. A sovereign God who will be born, be made incarnate, and laid in a feeding trough. Augustus is nothing compared to the king born in a stable. So while Augustus sits in his swanky imperial palace in Rome... The God of all things enters flesh and cries as a baby in a room where animals are kept. These are very different kingdoms, yes? And if we're hearing that with earthly ears, which kingdom would we conclude is superior, though? Caesar thinks he's wielding power, but really God is using him to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. Specifically, Micah 5:2. So who's really in charge? Who is Caesar Augustus anyway? Well, of course he's the ruler of Roman Empire, but he came to power because he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, who adopted him as a son. Well, after Caesar died, he was declared a god. Caesar was. Julius. by the Roman Senate. So you know the title that Augustus took? "Son of God." Even his title, Augustus, it's not his name, it's the title, means majestic, holy, or revered, and is a title reserved for the gods of Rome. He also was called Lord and benefactor of all the empire. He was said to bring peace to the earth and was considered savior of the whole world. When Rome would win victory in battle or take over a territory, this was called good news, that would be proclaimed throughout the empire. Even Augustus's birth was hailed as gospel. Good news. Now put yourself in the shoes of a Jew in Palestine like the shepherds in verse eight who received this message from the angels or as someone living under Rome's, Rome's tyranny decades later and you're reading Luke's gospel what's he saying? He's saying that a better king has come who is the embodiment of the true good news, the true gospel. Good news that brings great joy to those who receive it, and it's for all people. It truly is for the actual whole world. Who is born this day? A true Savior, the true Lord, who is God's true Christ, the actual Son of God. And he's worthy to receive glory from all people because he brings real and true and lasting good peace. Reading this in this context, you're not thinking, what a cute heartwarming story. You're thinking the true eternal king has landed to bring a superior and eternal kingdom. You're thinking God is doing something new in the world. And he isn't doing it through second tier agents or subcontractors. He himself has come and he is greater than any king or ruler. And Jesus brings real and true peace. The angel's Sing that peace is coming to those with whom God is pleased, or people who humbly respond to the gospel of this baby. What does peace look like? You know, when Rome brought peace, what they called Pax Romana, Roman peace, it was them coming to people and saying, submit to our rule or we'll take you by force. That was them bringing peace. Is that how Jesus brings peace? You know, many years ago, Stansbury is a, it's a chain in the supermarket of supermarkets in England. They came out with a popular Christmas ad that depicted the Christmas truce of World War I, which is an actual event. Have you guys heard of the Christmas truce of World War I? It's, it's a very nice, uh, very nice commercial, very nice story. On Christmas Day in 1914, when the war was raging, the German troops and the Allied troops, they ceased their fighting and they met in no man's land, where they shared food and they sang songs. Uh, They even played soccer together. They stopped trying to kill each other for a day. And they came together to celebrate Christmas. And really, it is a cool and heartwarming story, but here's the thing, okay? That peace only lasted a few days. And the same men that shook hands and played games turned their rifles on each other once again, and the fighting continued, and they killed each other. So there was peace, right? Right? But it didn't last. And the peace that was achieved when the war was over was why? Because one side killed more people, right, than the other side. Because that's how men bring peace, often through death and destruction. Peace constructed by men is feeble and temporal. But the peace proclaimed by these angels and these shepherds is one given by the only unique God-man, and it promises peace between people, true peace. It's to bring people who are different, together, in unity, because this gospel is sufficient binding agent. They doesn't need anything else in common. And it needed to come from outside the world. Because those inside the world are incapable of producing true and lasting peace. Yes? We're more advanced than we've ever been. Is there more peace in the world now than ever? No, there's probably less. Right? The last century was the most technologically advanced in human history. And what did we do with that technology? We made more efficient weapons to kill each other. That's how kingdoms of the world bring peace. But this kingdom that this child brings is different. This peace also offers the peace we need the most, which is peace between us and God. The real enmity of the world stems from man's broken relationship with his creator, Fallen man hates each other because they're warring against God. They hate his law, they hate his rule, and so they rage and they do as they please and they act as fall rulers thinking that they know how to rule better than God. And no matter how hard man tries, he can neither recognize that he's at war with God nor mend the broken relationship once recognized. But Christmas announces true peace brokered by and initiated by God himself who has come down to mend the relationship and be himself the people's peace. And the feeding trough is pointing us to this different king and different kingdom because who on earth would choose this? Truly, who would choose to be laid in a feeding trough? What ruler have you ever heard about in history whose coming was heralded with pomp and circumstances, and they were born among animals and laid where animals' slop was kept. Would you choose that for your child? What would you think of someone who gave birth in a barn and put their newborn in a feeding trough? You know, if you were to do like that cinematic aerial view on the night Luke 2 happened, and you were able to see the whole world, and you swooped down to see Augustus. What's, what's Augustus up to on this night? You'd see him in a swanky palace in the greatest city, sipping the best wine, eating the best food, surrounded by sycophants telling him how awesome he is. Now, if you swoop, zoomed out and you flew where? A small town in the countryside of Palestine and the birth of a better ruler, is in a stable with nary an actual crib. And no one is there except Joseph and Mary. And he's wrapped in rags. And he's placed in a feeding trough. And outside, his arrival is being heralded to who? Shepherds, guys whose only friends were each other and sheep because they were at the bottom of the social rung. And the shepherds are told what? Go to Bethlehem. And find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in the feeding trough. And if they were just told, right, if, if they were just told, find a baby in swaddling clothes, that would tell them nothing. Because guess what? All babies, that'd be like me telling you, go to the, NIC, go to the ICU and find baby in a blanket. Right? That would tell you nothing. They're all like that because the ancients thought this was needed to keep the limbs straight. But being told, he'd be lying in a feeding trough. There's only... One baby like that. You know who he is? The king of the universe. You guys get this? <laughs> the shock and the scandal. How, how is that? Look at verse 7. How's the actual birth described? She gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. That's all it says. Simplicity. Briefly described in unadorned terms because the owner of everything that exists arrives without pretense, which is in itself an arresting sentence. And I mean, you would look at all of this in 2021 eyes and all the power dynamics we have and all the political goofballery we have and how everyone is seeking power and everyone is seeking comfort and everyone is seeking first place and everyone wants attention and to be well thought of, and you would want what Augustus had. And you would want the power of Rome. That's human propensity. Is that not our inclination? More comfort, more power? You know, it's true. What are you going to say? Oh, I want less power and less comfort. Of course not. But the better kingdom comes in the humility found in a stone-feeding trough in a stable to poor parents in one of the worst towns of Palestine. This king chose this. He chose as his first throne room a stable and his first throne a feeding trough. And that's good news. And that is why this king and kingdom is better than every other king and kingdom that has ever existed or ever will exist. If Jesus had chosen a life like Augustus or a life like we would choose for ourselves or a life like any other ruler ever, then this would not be good news for the lowly or the outcast or the marginalized or the broken or the weary or the sinner or the needy. In other words, it would not be good news for you or me. We are the needy. Are we not? We are the broken. We are the weary. We are a people who need saving. We need someone who will come for the least. And his humility to be intentionally, to be among the least should drive us to the humility required to receive his salvation. If we don't see our, do you not see? If we don't see ourselves as the needy and as the broken and as the weary, how can we receive this king? And how can we live a life in his upside-down kingdom of humility and death to self and awareness of our neediness if we don't see ourselves as broken or needy? Now, Martin Luther, in his Christmas sermon in 1530, said this, If Christ had arrived with trumpets and lain in a cradle of gold, his birth would have been a splendid affair, but it would not be a comfort to me. He was rather to lie in the lap of a poor maiden and be thought of little significance in the eyes of the world. Now I can come to him. Now he reveals himself to the miserable in order to not not give any impression that he arrives with great power, splendor, wisdom, and aristocratic manners. If I'd been God, he said, and wanted to save the world, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have just called in the devil and twisted his nose and said, let my people go. But God is amazing. He sends a little baby, as weak as an earthworm, lying in the feed box of a donkey, and that little baby crunches the devil's back and overcomes all the power of hell and sin and death. Aren't you struck by this? The God who said to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now himself lay wrapped in rags in a feeding trough. Is that all wonder of wonders? Praise God that Christ did not come among the wealthy, important and powerful, and praise God that his kingdom isn't designed to benefit the important of the world, but is for the broken, humble who admit their need and thus are repaired by God, who could sympathize, a God who could sympathize with their weakness since he voluntarily chose the most humble of circumstances to come and get us and suffered everything we would and more. Are you not awestruck by this? Aren't you glad that the only eternal kingdom isn't like the kingdoms of the world? Aren't you glad that the kingdom this baby brings is nothing at all? Like the power dynamics of this world. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped and he who needed no humbling humbled himself and took on the form of a human and came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Christmas is not fundamentally about presents and food and to-do lists and decoration and nostalgia and having it all together, but it's fundamentally about a God who loves you so much that he would identify with the least and the last. This really is a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom, isn't it? And it's good news if you're willing to admit you're hungry and you can't fill yourself or find food that truly satisfies like Mary sang in 153. And this brings us to our second point. Point number 2, the feeding trough alerts us to the fact that this baby is himself true food. The feeding trough alerts us to the fact that the baby is himself true food. Consider again the location of this birth. Okay? We noted that God used Rome as an unwitting pawn, right, to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, which fulfills Micah 5.2. But I want you also to consider what Bethlehem means. You know, the word Bethlehem in Hebrew is a conjunction of two words, it and lechem. Okay? it means house. And lechem means bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. It's the city of David, like Luke says, yes, but it's also the house of bread. Then we see Jesus placed in a feeding trough where animals get their food. Or could it be that when Mary placed the Savior of the world in this feeding trough, that the feeding trough then became the place of food for the whole world? You know, perhaps the feeding trough is also pointing us to the fact that Jesus has come to be true food for starving people. After all, Jesus refers to himself as the true bread of heaven, yes, many times in the Gospels. In John 6 alone, Jesus says that he is the bread of life, and whoever comes to him will not hunger. Then in verse 41, he says he is the bread that came down from heaven. In 51, he says again, he is the living bread come from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then in John 1, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then in 6.55, Jesus says that his flesh is true food. In Luke's gospel, did you know this? There are no less than 60 references to food and drink, which comes to about two and a half references per chapter because Luke is connecting salvation with the great banquet that comes at the end of the age brought about by Jesus. And let's not forget, the language and symbolism of the Lord's Supper is what? Eating the flesh and blood of who? Of Jesus. Why? Because he is the true food that will fill us to the full. Mary says in the Magnificat that salvation that God is bringing through this baby will come through her womb includes God filling the hungry. Do you remember that? Filling those who will admit they need food. Beggars who are tired of looking for the satisfaction of this world and the self-salvation projects of their lives and want true and lasting food that will fill you while making you want more. Jesus in the feeding trough is showing us that he has come to fill us to the full. He is true bread. And what this is telling us, and what Jesus himself is saying, is that he is the only one who could satisfy you at the deepest level. But you first have to admit you're starving. Those who already think they are full, because of who they are, or what they've accomplished, or what their name is, or what their reputation is, or what they own, they will remain hungry. They remain hungry thinking they are full because they are hopped up on counterfeit food. That is, th- th- that is to lack the humility of this king and his kingdom and such a prideful heart will not be receptive to the things of God, will it? How can it be? It thinks it's better than the God of the universe who humbled himself <laughs> in the ways we've seen here. But for those who see and humbly admit I am hungry and I cannot find or merit food, those are the ones this baby in the feeding trough will fill. But there's so much in this world, right, that is promising to fill you. Isn't that true? To bring you satisfaction? And we think those things will do the trick, and yet, we're never fulfilled. You know, in a few weeks, I'm going to have to go back to Louisville for my final doctoral seminar, and one of my least favorite things, which is odd, about being there is trying to decide what to eat every night. (laughs) Louisville is a relatively large city, so there's, you know, a lot of options. Slightly more than cordial, can you imagine? Uh, it's almost like too many, you know what I mean? Is that weird? That, that's both a good and bad thing, right? It's good to have options, but it's hard to choose. Now, there's a bunch of fast food joints, of course, and, and, and this would be the easiest and cheapest option. But it's also bad for me, yes, and unsatisfying. I could go to the market and get something and take back to where I'm staying and I could cook this costs a little more and it's more time-consuming but it will leave me healthier and more satisfied. In our world there are myriads and myriads of things that promise a cheap and quick fulfillment. Yes? Alcohol, sex, drugs, validation, hobby, success, money, relationship, work, houses, cars, vacations, possessions, and on and on and on we go. And they say to you I am what can finally give you the meaning and purpose and value that you seek deep down inside. And they dazzle our fickle eyes, and we chase them, and at last we find what we always find, that they promise what they cannot pay. That they are fast food, that they are cheap and easy, but they can't fulfill us. But then we typically... This is the madness of sin and depravity. We don't, typically, we don't typically conclude with, this means I need something from outside the world to fill me. We just say, well, maybe if I just had more of what doesn't satisfy, that will do the trick. Or we look at Jesus' offer for what it really means, that it will cost more. That it will take time and devotion to follow him as he gives us true food. And we say, it's too much. I could have both. I could give marginal assent to Jesus, casual following, and chase those other things. Christmas says to this, not so fast. Christmas says, Behold the humble king in the feeding trough. Behold God made flesh to reconcile you. To him, this king will fill you to the full as the true food for your soul. He will save you from sin and death, and he'll even save you from the self-salvation projects. And such a king deserves your full devotion. Christmas shows us an unfathomable story of how God, God, you think about that for a minute. God became man to get to you. Does that blow you away? Some of y'all look like you're going to nap. Does that blow you away? God became man to get you. And he intends to bring you peace with himself. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled, and he intends to bring you peace with people, and he intends to be your savior and your champion, and you don't deserve any of it, but he's happy to move heaven and earth to get to you and finally make you whole and empower you to live life as intended. That is kind of gospel should evoke in us more than casual following and marginal cultural Christianity it should evoke in us full and unbashed devotion and radical following and submission to God's Messiah because don't you see the junk food things that we pursue are precisely what's pushing him to the fringes of our lives you see the irony there but they don't fill us and we know that. Christmas says, Go again to the feeding trough of the house of bread and see in it true food of the world. The only one who can satisfy the true manna in the wilderness, the true bread of heaven that will sustain your life now and into eternity. He is worth everything you have. Isn't he? Isn't he? All of us have been to a restaurant where they come and offer you bread, right? Before the food comes. The offer's there, but some say, I don't know who does this, but some people allegedly say, no thank you, right? I don't want bread right now. I want something else. Christmas is offering us the bread of heaven, but far too many people say to this offer of fulfillment, no thank you. I want something else. But something else will never satisfy, don't you see? Friend, can I ask you, have you been saying no thank you to the bread of heaven your whole life? Or maybe at one time you said yes. But you've gotten to a place where junk has put the king of kings to the margins of your life. In either case, see him again and receive his offer in humility. Admit you're hungry. And he'll feel you now and forever. You know, there's a Christmas song that doesn't get much attention. It's called, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. You guys know that song? Does any you know that song? It was written in the third century. Okay. <laughs> the second line says this, King of kings yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture in the body and the blood. He will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. The feeding trough tells us heavenly food has come and is being offered to the hungry. And who are the hungry? Raise your hand if you're the hungry. Every person. (laughs) But we have to admit that to receive the bread of heaven. And he will satisfy fully and simultaneously cause us to want more (laughs) of him. And he will satisfy those longings too every single time. But third and last, the feeding trough alerts us to the fact that this baby will live a life of rejection that ends as it began. The feeding trough alerts us to the fact that this baby will live a life of rejection that ends as it began. Now, although there's no appearance of an evil innkeeper denying Joseph and Mary a place to stay, right, nor a town-wide vast conspiracy to keep Mary out of the local inns, we do see in this text the Savior of the world not having a place to stay, right, even as he is brought forth in the world. And why is that? It says at the end of verse 7, right, what's the reason? There's no place, right? No place to stay. But this does foreshadow for us a hallmark of Jesus' ministry and atoning death, which is rejection. There may be no malicious intent at the end of verse 7, but the fact remains that Jesus' earthly parents were turned away. And thus, so was Jesus. And even if the bare facts tell us that there was simply no room, this tells us something of what Israel has been like for a long time, which is they have no room for God's will for them. And it tells us that what Jesus' earthly life will be like and what he came for. This again is good news. Him having no room to stay. Like the Magnificat so eloquently put it Jesus has come for those who society has no room or time for. He is the champion of the despised and rejected. And that could clearly be seen by the fact that he himself was despised and rejected. If he had been heralded and accepted with great fanfare like a wealthy, earthly king would be, how would that be good news for the hurting? Or the broken? Or the marginalized? Or the rejected or wounded or lonely and hated? It simply wouldn't be good news. Thomas Merton said this, Into this world, this demented inn, in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ has come uninvited, but because he cannot be at home in it, because he is out of place in it, and yet he must be in it, his place is with those others for whom there is no room. Christ's place, what Merton said, is that with those who do not belong, who are rejected by power because they are regarded as weak, those who are discredited, who are denied the status of persons, tortured and exterminated with those for whom there is no room, Christ is present in this world. Rose Ramsey adds this, the Lord Jesus was poor for us, marginalized for us, excluded for us, frozen out of polite society for us, and by his obedience, costly life, and his obedient, sin-bearing death, we are made unimaginably rich. Perhaps Luke is trying to point us to the fact that Jesus will live a life, and you know this, where he won't be welcomed even in his hometown, which is an awful city, by the way. Right? You remember when people were like, where's this dude from? And they're like, he's from Nazareth. And they're like, can anything good, right, come from Nazareth? And Jesus wasn't even welcome there. And we'll see as we go through Luke this over and over again. You jump to chapter 4 and Jesus' public ministry, the very first thing he does after the temptation in the wilderness is go into a synagogue in Nazareth and he opens Isaiah 61, which you know what it says? That God has anointed one who will preach the good news to the poor and release for the captive and sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed, all the margins of society. And he says, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." You know how they receive that? Not good, right? They freak out and they reject him. In chapter six, the religious leaders—chapter six—the religious leaders are already plotting on how to take him out. In chapter 8, he's asked to leave Gersenis. In chapter 9, he says that the, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. In chapter 10, he says that those who reject him reject the Father. In chapter 17, he says he must be rejected. In chapter 20, he says it again that he will be rejected. In chapter 23, the crowd shouts what? Kill him. Jesus' life is full of rejection and on purpose because he wins by losing. His rejection will culminate in his substitutionary death where he will die in the place of the very people who kill him and reject him. This fits in perfectly with an unexpected birth, doesn't it? Because everything about Jesus is surprising because he's not ruling over some kingdom that's just like what we would have guessed. His kingdom is different because this kingdom is not of this world and it's open to all, is it not? This sign, verse 12, what's it say? The sign is for who? For you. Just put your name in there. Just put your name in there. This is who Jesus came for. Anyone who would humble themselves, admit they're hungry, and receive Him and submit to Him. No matter what your past looks like, no matter your identity, no matter what you've done, No matter where you've been, this is a sign for you. A Christ who identifies with the rejected because he himself was rejected. Do you guys remember, many years ago, Ted Turner, billionaire Ted, said that Christianity is for losers? Do you guys remember that? There was so much hubbub, wasn't there? Christians were like big mad. Like, first of all, who cares what Ted Turner thinks, right? Man, know, like, Christians are upset. How dare you say Christianity is for losers? It's not for losers, it's for winners. Why do we get so mad? Ted Turner was right, wasn't he? Christianity is for losers. Who else would it be for? Right, would it be good news that Jesus came for the winners of the world? Is that good news? Why would that be good news? Now, those who have standing are the ones Jesus came for. If they're winners, why would they need rescue anyway? And why do we want to be a winner or be strong? What's the motivation for that? Who's that for? If you're afraid to admit you're a loser, how on earth are you going to admit that you're so incredibly sinful and lost and unable to do good that God had to come in flesh in order to secure your rescue? The feeding trough and Jesus' providential rejection is telling us that Jesus is for the weak. Jesus is for the poor. Jesus is for losers. Jesus is for those who come to the end of themselves and look to God for deliverance. Who throw up their hands and say, "I can't do it, but you can." I'm weak, but you're strong. I don't need to be. I don't need to be strong. You're strong. I'm unrighteous, but you're righteous. I'm hungry, but you're bread. That's who the gospel's for. Trevor Wax said this. Weak is a four-letter word for the self-sufficient, boastful entrepreneurs. But Christians see that the world's understanding of strength is backwards, that true strength is made most visible in intentional weakness. This intentional weakness and rejection by Jesus not only foreshadows his coming life of rejection, but it foreshadows how his life will end, doesn't it? I want you to check this out. I thought this was the coolest when I saw it. Consider again the detail of the feeding trough and the swaddling cloths. Luke decided, through the Holy Spirit, to include these details, right, like, he could have left out the, 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 the manger. He could have left out the swaddling cloths, right, altogether. But he intentionally included them. Luke does what he's been doing up to this point. We saw this last week too. He's pointing forward and also bookending his gospel with important details and events. Here he tells us that Jesus is born and his body is wrapped in strips of linen and laid in a stone feeding trough. Do you know what Luke, Luke says in, in 2353 after Jesus' crucifixion? He says that they took Jesus' body and they wrapped him. And they wrapped him in strips of linen and they laid him in a stone tomb. From wrapped in swaddling cloths to wrapped in burial cloths. From laid like the bread of the world in a stone feeding trough that was borrowed to laid in a stone grave like the flesh given for man. How he came to earth points us to how he would die. His humility to enter flesh and enter it in such a manner as this points us to his intentional humiliation to stand in your place and be executed by powers that he rules over. You know, it's so funny. Right when I wrote that sentence, I was listening to this Christmas playlist on my iPad, and this this song came up by Bebo Norman. He has a song called Born to Die, and the chorus goes like this. And the angels filled the sky, all of heaven wondered why, why their king would choose to be a baby born to die. This is precisely what the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity planned from eternity's past. To be born in a stable in a backwater town to an unwed mother, rejected a place to stay, live a life of rejection and homelessness, allow the Roman Empire to kill him. And lay again on stone like he did when his life and flesh began. Who would have guessed that? Daryl Boxes in commentary What is amazing is not that the child is wrapped up, but who the child is and where he is. One hardly expects to find Messiah in animal room. One would expect a palace, but the Messiah's humble and common origins fit nicely with the task that he shall bear for all his people, including especially the humble, hungry, and poor. Messiah's life will contain an unusual bookend for a king, since he was born in an animal room and will die with robbers." Who would have guessed that? Who would have come up with such a way to rescue a fallen world? Only this great God, and only this Jesus is up for and worthy of this task, and the greatest rescue mission in history, and you know the story did not end with Jesus being laid in a tomb, did it? Praise God. Here in Luke 2, we see angels, right, as the first to herald the birth of this newborn king to terrified shepherds. If you look in Luke 24, guess what it says? We have angels being the first to herald the resurrection to terrified women. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. This king, this glorious, humble king Who is infinitely greater than any ruler who has ever or will ever live has done the unthinkable. He's entered into flesh. That thought alone should stagger us. Entered the most unexpected, humble way imaginable, lived a perfect life, but was still rejected and scorned to the point that he was executed naked and alone on a Roman cross, suffering the abandonment and wrath of God. Not because of what he did, he's perfect. But because of what we did, and was laid in a borrowed tomb, but he kicked the grave door out, defeating sin and death in the process, so thus ascend to his rightful place on the throne of the universe. And why? We do, do all that for? For you. Are you not flabbergasted right now? I know you guys got the itis, okay? from Eden, but, I mean, come on! Are you not flabbergasted by this gospel? Are you not moved? Are you not amazed? Are you not humbled? I mean, we should be frightened. Frightened if we could hear this glorious gospel and be unmoved. I mean, that's scary. We shouldn't be able to look at the Christmas story and be like, yeah, I've heard it a million times. I mean, can you believe it? God came in flesh to die for you. Will you not respond? You know, if you go to Bethlehem today, you can visit a church called the Church of Nativity. And if you were to visit that church where they say Jesus was born or near you, you might encounter this wall that has a door so low you would have to stoop to enter the church on the other side. (coughs) And I think there's something beautifully poetic about that, about what it communicates about Christmas. Jesus stooped to get to you. That should be clearer today than it ever has been for you. He didn't need to stoop. He, He didn't need to do anything but he voluntarily stooped and was voluntarily humiliated and killed for the joy set before him because that's how much he loves you. And that's how much he loves me. And we don't deserve a single ounce of it. But he did it anyway because of his great mercy. My friend, don't you see that if you're to approach this glorious king, you must stoop. You must approach him on your knees and submit to him and say to him, you are king, I am not. You are savior, I am not. You run the show, I do not. And I want to give you my full-hearted, undivided allegiance and my life, and I want the food you offer because I am hungry as a poor man who has never eaten. Will you choose to respond this way? If you're here and you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this Jesus, this is how you must approach him. And you should do it today because, my friend, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And if you do know this, Jesus, this is how you are to approach him again and again and again and again. Release your hold on the things that have pushed him to the fringes of your life. And in humility, admit that you have allowed him to be edged aside. And follow him with reckless abandon. And let him be your food always. What's Christmas about? Well, as somebody once said, if Christmas is about presents, the poor are hopeless. If Christmas is about family, the orphan is hopeless. But if it is about Christ, none are hopeless. We have hope, we have peace, we have salvation, we have light in the darkness, all because of the baby in the feeding trough. Allow me to close with this quote from Russ Ramsey. He said, from the manger of Bethlehem to the cross of Calvary, Jesus moved among the people, came into their homes, touched their blind eyes, and permitted their unfaithful hands to touch him. He taught them profound lessons from ordinary events. He defended the defenseless and opposed the self-righteous. He ate at their tables, laughed with their children, and wept over their grief. Never did he abandon his purpose of coming, which was to die for a world of spirit-poor outsiders as the Lamb of God who takes their sin away. Jesus was born poor, he lived poor, and he died poor for the sake of his people." The shepherds could not have known that this boy had come into the world in the same way he would leave it. Out in the open, among the outcast, poor and despised, but driven by one purpose, to ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. This is good news of great joy. That's for you. For to us has been born the greatest king imaginable, who is Christ, the true Lord, and the true Savior, and he deserves all of the glory in the highest heaven, embrace him and his upside down kingdom and you will never hunger